Okay, if you could uh, grab your Bibles. My, uh, my best friend growing up, my best friend while I was growing up, started to visit the church that my father and three other men and their families began, and today is just thriving, planting churches. And Anyways, my best friend growing up visited the church that I grew up in, and our church did it right, but what made, it so, what, what made him take so long to get to our church was that he was part of another church that the pastor would make everybody that was a regular attender stand up and all the visitors sit down. Oh, that's not good. You might as well put a big V on their forehead and mark them right out for a target, but uh, we don't do that here. We really genuinely do want you to connect because a lot of us, I'm going to say the majority of us, really don't see each other during the week, right? So to Sunday is your connection time, and that's why we want to encourage you, please get in a life group. Our life group is starting, I think we've got 20-some people in it. We're starting Wednesday evening, and we cannot wait to get going. We love our group, and uh, we love meeting new people. We've got new people coming to this group. And then we've got next Sunday the church picnic. Why do we do these things? Believe me, this is a lot of work to plan. Why do we do it? Because it gives you an opportunity to meet one another, you an opportunity to meet the leadership of our church, and vice versa. It's connection time, and it is vitally important in our busy, busy culture. Well, we're starting a new series. Every once in a while, I'm going to do a Gap Standers series, Standing in the Gap. And this time, we're going to begin with Elijah. We're going to be on in this series for several weeks. Um, We're going to look today... At God's man for dark times. Elijah, a man like us, is the overall title of the series, but today is the introduction, God's man for dark times. And I hope you've got your Bible. I really, really hope you keep bringing your Bible. Because I really want you to be marking up your Bible. I want you to be writing into the margins of your Bibles the words and the meanings and the definitions and the patterns that we're going to see and underlining and asterisking and saying, hey, I hope this catches my eye later. I I have sometimes marked my Bible, and years later, reading through it, I've thought to myself, wow, I remember when I marked it. It was that sermon, or it was that devotion, it was that experience, and it all comes back. So I encourage you, mark up your Bible, let your Bible mark you up. You know, my favorite football team is the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) I know, I know. People cannot understand, how could you grow up in central New York and like the Dallas Cowboys? Well, here's why I love the Dallas Cowboys. Because when I was a little boy starting to watch football, Tony Dorsett was an electrifying running back. And you got to love Roger Staubach, man. He would grab the football, and he had broken his finger so much, it would be sticking out that way. I thought, that is toughness. That's my kind of guy. I love the Cowboys. But what really, really got me enjoying and liking and being a fan of the Cowboys was Coach Tom Landry. I have literally, literally had people tell me they don't know if they can continue coming to this church because I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. And I always tell them, I'm glad to see you go. (laughs) But here's why I like the Cowboys. Because of Tom Landry. And nobody who is a cowboy hater, in my experience, not once, ever, never have I ever heard any cowboy hater say a disparaging word about Tom Landry. 
The guy had character. He was a godly man. And he is rejoicing because of a clear testimony in Christ today with our Savior. I really venerate and honor Tom Landry. And that's why I like the Cowboys. That's why I began to like the Cowboys. I know they went downhill, a lot of prison inmates and all that. But (laughs) you still got to get the legacy and the heritage. I think there's wired into each of us. Now, is this not true? You think you're, you're interacting this morning. Don't just put your mind in neutral. You can't do that when somebody's preaching because you could swallow a boatload of poison and not even know about it. You've got to interact with the words and see if they're true. Isn't it true for you, or at least most of us, there's something in us that connects with heroes. And for me personally, men, women, and teenagers who live heroically for Christ in the midst of adversity. Listen, I'm there. I'm your fan. You've got me. Because I think there's something incredibly honorable about somebody who can live in the face of adversity and bring glory to Jesus Christ. But there is a trap in this. There is a trap in doing a character study sermon series. And I want to make sure that as we're walking through the woods of these scriptures, we used to trap when I was a little boy, and you had to be careful where you walked. And as we're walking through these scriptures, and we're going to be looking at Elijah, we've got to be careful to remember. Now, listen, if you don't get anything else this morning, at least start by getting this. Ready? What I'm about to tell you. You've got to remember that the Bible, the Bible is God's autobiography. Did you hear that? It is God's autobiography. He wrote it through men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it. It's a story of him and his redemption, his love for fallen humanity, his plan to restore fallen humanity and give him salvation. And the trap is we could really focus on Elijah so much that we bring glory to Elijah and forget that Elijah lived to bring glory to God. In fact, if Elijah was here this morning, friends, I am guaranteeing you, I can promise you, he would stand up more than likely tell me to stop talking for a minute. He's pretty bold in your face. And he would turn to each of us and he would say this, listen, study my life and learn Put your life up against mine. That's fine. Be challenged. But don't end on me. Don't end on me. You go through me and you bring glory to my God because I lived for him. And if you end on me, you're missing the point. This is God's autobiography. It's written about God. And it must stay centered on him. So we're not going to glorify Elijah. We're going to honor him. And we're going to examine his life as one that is worthy of our example. And if you're with me in 1 Kings 17, we begin in verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab. That's our text this morning. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long, boring sermon. And more than likely, you're right, and you're going to grin and bear it, because this is very, very important what I'm going to share with you. This sets the whole foundation for this series. So engage with me. 
You've got to learn what Scripture is saying because the books of First and Second Kings, right? If you if you read your Bible, there's First and Second Kings. They weren't always First and Second Kings. Originally, that was one book. Those who compiled the Bible split that out. That was one timeline. And if you read this timeline, First and Second Kings, it covers four hundred years. Of Israel's history, all of a sudden, if you're a student of the Bible, if you know, if you're familiar with First and Second Kings, all of a sudden the book is frenetically paced, but it all of a sudden slows down when it gets to Elijah and Elisha. Forty-seven chapters in the two books, fifteen of them. Fifteen of them are devoted to Elijah and Elisha. It's a lot of focus. It's a lot of ministry. They span 80 years between the two of them. And people, they read, they tend to read 1st and 2nd Kings. And listen, are you like this? They get to 1st and 2nd Kings and all of a sudden they start to bog down because they're getting confused. Well, let me give you an example. You might have to flip your page back, just one page, 1 Kings 16, look at verse 29. Here's what's confusing. You read this, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to rule over Israel, and we're starting to scratch our heads, and we're going, wait a minute, how can two kings rule at the same time? This makes no sense. There's too many names. You know, Israel had been one people. They were one nation under God, kind of like we're supposed to be in America. And they had come out of Egypt as slaves, and they settled into the fertile land of Canaan. God had led them there. God brought them out of Egypt. God gave them into the promised land. And eventually the people said, we want to be like the nations all around us. We want a king. In other words... They didn't really want to have to keep relying on God's theocratic rule. They wanted a king. And so they did get a king, and here's Saul. Saul became their first king, and then after Saul, David, and then after David, Solomon, and together, the three of them, 100 years of kingship, the first three kings of Israel. But let me tell you what happened. Solomon started out great, and ended badly. Israel reached her height of glory and prominence under Solomon, and then all of a sudden he started to develop a thing for the ladies. Many, many, many wives and concubines, and every wife would bring in her own gods. And all of a sudden Solomon became fairly tolerant and fairly pluralistic. There's lots of ways to worship. It's okay. And God said, that's not okay. You're the representative leader of me for my people. And you know what I'm going to do, Solomon? I'm going to honor your father, David, but I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hands. And I'm going to split it in two. Solomon dies. Here comes Rehoboam. Here comes Jeroboam. And all of a sudden, a civil war erupts in Israel. And civil war that breaks them right in two. And all of a sudden, now, you've got a northern kingdom. And you've got a southern kingdom. And you've got a northern kingdom that's called Israel. And you've got a southern kingdom called Judah. And for a lot of the history of Israel, they're fighting. And they're warring against one another. They don't like one another. The civil war ran deep. 
If you took the New Testament, the time of Jesus, and you took Galilee and Samaria, and you put those two regions together, remember, north is Galilee, middle of Palestine, Samaria, the south is Judah, that's where Jerusalem was. You've got Samaria and Galilee, that's the northern kingdom, that's Israel, roughly. You've got the Judah being the, the lower part of Jesus' ministry and Jerusalem area. So now you've got two kingdoms because God took it away from them and he allowed the civil war to occur. And all of a sudden you get kings now for Israel, kings now for Judah. Now listen to this. Altogether, Israel had 19 kings. You want to know what the Bible says about those 19 kings? Every single one of them was evil in the sight of the Lord. No exception. They didn't just do evil things. They... Each were evil by nature. And meanwhile, you've got Judah. That's Israel. That's north. You've got the southern kingdom of Judah. And they've got 17 kings in their span of time. And eight of them, the Bible says, followed the Lord their God. So you've got eight of 17 that were godly kings in the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, you've got 19. And every single one of them were wicked, one after another. And now you go back, look back in your text, chapter 16 of 1 Kings. Remember that verse we just read? Now it brings some clarity to us. In the 38th year of Asa, he's the southern kingdom ruler, king of Judah. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to rule over Israel. Ahab's the king of the northern kingdom. And listen, the Bible puts these timelines in parallel for a reason. One of the reasons is this. You get to see, and I get to see, God honoring those who honor him. You know what's going to happen to Israel? Here comes the superpower of Assyria, and they're going to come swooping down and to completely annihilate the northern kingdom because every single king rejected God and led their people into sin. Now, fathers, I don't know if you're making this connection, dads, we need to make this connection. We lead our families and we will create a legacy. And are you creating a godly legacy? Are you creating a legacy of wickedness and unfaithfulness? Dads, we've got to think like that because this is what it's captured for us to, to ponder. Judah is going to hold out a little longer because Judah had some faithful kings, but pretty soon they're going to turn away from the Lord too and not Assyria anymore because Babylon is going to conquer Assyria. Now Babylon's going to be the superpower. They're going to sneak down very, very blatantly and they're going to annihilate the southern kingdom. And all of a sudden we read about this Jeroboam's sin. This is, dads, why we've got to pay attention to this. You remember Jeroboam and Rehoboam? Solomon dies. Here comes Jeroboam and a civil war erupts. You know what Jeroboam did? Jeroboam said, I can't control the northern kingdom if they keep going down to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, Jehovah. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create two different places for my people to worship. And look what he does. He makes two calves of gold. You can see it behind me. And he says to the people... You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Why does it say gone up to Jerusalem if they're coming from the north? Because it doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, Jerusalem's on a mountain. You always go up to Jerusalem. 
You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We see this golden calf again, the same one Moses came down from that mountain with the commandments and saw. Here they are repeating the same sin. Jeroboam is introducing idolatry, the gods of the Canaanites, right into Israel so that all the kings now, 1 Kings 15, 34, you can see it on the screen, they start getting described like this. They walked in the way of Jeroboam and his sin. Dad, this is the power of your legacy, dads. This is your power. Whether you use it for good or not, you create in your generations to follow you. You create patterns of faithfulness or patterns of unfaithfulness. And by the time of Elijah, and we're, we're getting right back to our text this morning pretty quickly... By the time of Elijah, look at verse 31 of chapter 16. It's just a verse or two before our text. Just a few verses. Verse 31 of chapter 16, 1 Kings. Look at what happens. King Ahab of Israel took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. See, Ahab marries Jezebel for political power. And you know where she's from? Well, think Jesus and his ministry. You've got Judah down at the bottom of Palestine, Samaria, Galilee, and then you go north to Tyre and Sidon. It's called the land of the Phoenicians. It's right along the Mediterranean coast. She's from this area. Her father is the king of Phoenicia. He is Eth Baal, meaning his god is Baal. She's coming from him, marries Ahab, the king of Israel, and brings with her a sick, crude, evil dowry, her gods of Baal and Asherah. Listen, there's a reason. There is a reason I won't marry a Christian with a non-Christian. You can't find a clearer example of what happens than this text. Parents, listen, examine who your child dates. Warn them. They're heading for misery if they marry outside of the faith. Jezebel, you know what? She's not interested in tolerance. Isn't that the word we use all the time? We hear it all the time in the news. You've got to be tolerant. Listen, nobody's tolerant when they're faced with exclusive truth. Nobody. You might have somebody that's a friend of yours that is pluralistic, meaning there's lots of ways up to the mountain. It all leads to eternity, all leads to nirvana, all leads to heaven. It doesn't matter what path you take. That's pluralism. But until you all of a sudden quote to them the words of Jesus that says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty exclusive. And all of a sudden, tolerance goes out the window and they become intolerant. We're not called to be tolerant, friends. And we're going to see that in Elijah. We're called to be intolerant of evil. And to declare the truth of God. So Jezebel, she's not really interested in tolerance. She's not saying, okay, Jehovah, just move over a little bit. and Let me bring Baal and Asherah. We'll mix our gods. There's room for all three. She wants to remove Jehovah and replace the worship of God with the worship of Baal and Asherah. She goes on a killing spree, killing the prophets of God. This is a murderous woman. 
She's got 450 prophets of Baal, and she's got 400 prophets of Asherah. Who's Baal? Baal was a fertility and weather god. Baal was a god that had many names. He was called the storm deity, called the rider of the clouds. His worshipers drew him. He had a lightning bolt in one hand and thunder in his voice. And it's all tied to fertility. By the way, if you're studying this in college or high school, almost all pagan mythology is tied to fertility. Because all Old Testament civilizations were ultimately agrarian. They were agricultural. The land had to produce food. It's the same today. You go to a third world country, their mythology, their pagan gods are all fertility gods tied to the land and tied to their wives being able to have children. So you've got Baal who was murdered in their mythology. Listen, you've got to get this. Baal was killed every summer by the god Moat, the god of death. And Moat would kill Baal, and all of a sudden the hot season would come, and the rains would not fall. Israel had two rainy seasons, the spring and the fall. In the summer, they didn't get rain because their mythology of Baalism was that he was dead. Moat had killed him. But he's always going to come back to life, and he comes back to life in the autumn and brings those rains in order to bless those who are faithful and worship him. And so you've got Baal, who is this weather god and this fertility god. Listen, you've got a lady, you've got a wife that can't have children. And then pour out your drink offerings. Go do a ritual with a priest or a prophet of Baal or Asherah, and he will give you a child in your womb. That was what they believed. And of course, every god wouldn't be a good god if they didn't have a mom. And Baal had a mom. Her name was Asherah. So Jezebel brings his family cluster of gods into Israel. And she's got 850 of them. And by her own expenses, her own expense account in verse eight, chapter 18, verse 19, she's feeding all of them, meaning she's taking care of all of them. She's bankrolling the pagan theology. You know what God tells Elijah a little bit later? He says to him, he says, Elijah, listen, I've still got 7,000 faithful people who have not bent their needs to Baal and Asherah. And we might say, wow, 7,000. 7,000 faithful millions who had followed Baal. Israel had millions of people at this time. What a disparity. It's like the whole nation had turned away from God. And it was into these dark times that God raises up Elijah the prophet. And this is point two of what we're looking at. Look at verse one again. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Galilee, or Gilead. Elijah was, as one writer said, the most outstanding prophet reserved for the most corrupt age. He lived during the darkest days of Israel's unfaithfulness. He, listen, he watched Israel go from bad to worse. It was on a downhill track. Yet James says, and listen, this is one of our main points. James says in the New Testament, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Grapple with that. Wrestle with that a little bit. Elijah's not some super holy man, unapproachable by the average Christian. 
Elijah had a nature like us, you and I. Friends, you know Elijah questioned God. You know Elijah struggled with thoughts of futility. Elijah didn't even want to live. He did not even want to live at one point in his ministry. He battled discouragement. He struggled with loneliness. He was a man like us. He lived a life that we can live, one that we must live. And if we've ever needed men and women who will stand against evil, friends, it is now, even if you are alone. You know, Christians who will boldly rise up with humility in their hearts and the power of God in their actions are rare. But entering the battle, confronting the darkness, it's not for the timid and the weak. You know what it might do? This is my goal for the sermon series that all of us, me included, we will be gap standers. And I'll explain that in a minute. That we will rise up with humility and power. And we will no longer sit by idly. We will enter the battle as the people of God. That's my goal. You will come out of this series more boldly than you did going in. Let me tell you something. It will cost you probably your reputation. It may cost you job promotions. It will cost you likely comfort. It will cost you because it will undoubtedly, and I can promise you this, it will undoubtedly put you right into the enemy's crosshairs. I've had people in this church tell me I am not wanting to serve in that position because I know Satan will come after me. Friends, that is a coward. That's a coward. And I think it's why so many Christians stay out of the battle. Ultimately, they're cowards. They're not many who are willing to enter battle at the front of the army of God. But immediately in chapter 17, we're introduced to somebody who was. His name's Elijah. And his name is exploding with meaning. Here's what it means. You got the L, E-L. It's a contraction for Elohim, the name for God in the Old Testament. You've got Jah, the contraction for Jehovah. That's the covenantal special name. You've got a nickname that only your family, your best friends call you. Well, Israel had a nickname name for God. God gave it to him. It's a name for Israel to call their God. It's Jehovah. It's a, it's a name that says, I'm your God. I'm God for a special people. You've got El, you've got Jah, then you've got this little I. That, it's a throwaway in our minds, but in the Hebrew language, it's a pronoun, and it usually means my. And all of a sudden, we've got Elijah that means my God is Jehovah. Do you know what God was doing? You've got to think like this. God just took his glove off and smacked Ahab right in the face. So the battle's on. Because here comes my servant. And his name means my God is Jehovah. I know most of the Israelites, millions have gone away from me. But here's one of mine. And wait till you see what I'm going to do through him. You know, we don't know anything about Elijah's parents. It's very rare that somebody's introduced in the Bible without any reference to their parents. But here's one of them. No reference to his parents. But we know a lot about his dad and his mom. Only... Because we know dads had the responsibility to name their sons, their children. 
Listen, if you're in a town where most of your town has gone away from Jehovah to worship Baal and Asherah, and you name your child, my God is Jehovah, you're making a statement. Do you see the boldness of his father? I will not live my faith quietly. It will be public. It will be on my sleeve. I'm going to enter the battle, and the one that comes out of me is going to carry the battle forward. His parents were bold. They were strong in their faith. They named their boy a name that was a statement to the wickedness of Israel. And not only do we not know what his parents' names are, again, which is rare, but even more mysteriously, we don't know where the town of Tishbe was. We know nothing about that town. However, we do know a lot about Gilead. Gilead's the region. And it lies just below the Sea of Galilee. If you've been looking at those maps during our last series, you've got the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River comes south out of that, empties into the Dead Sea. You go just below the Sea of Galilee, cross to the right if you're looking at the map. It's the east of the Jordan. It's rugged, mountainous terrain. It's farmable, very fertile ground, but it's hilly and it's rocky and nobody but the strongest live there. Elijah was rugged. He was strong. He grew up in an environment that taught him toughness. And even 2 Kings 1.8 says he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Simple, rugged, tough. This is Elijah. <clears throat> See, under that exterior of toughness, though, surged a man of deep and rich passion. He gave everything he had, even his own safety, to the God he loved and served. You know, God looks for people who will do that. Now hear that again. God looks for people who will lay themselves on the altar and say, God, you've got everything I am. Not the 30% I've been giving you. Not the two hours a week. Not the 15 minutes in the morning. You've got all of me all of me, I'm on the altar as a sacrifice and I know the heat's coming because every altar has a fire and I know it's going to get hot. I know it's going to get difficult. I'm not climbing off this altar. You hold me there because you've got me all. You've got all of me. That's Elijah. And God looks for men and he looks for women and he looks for teenagers and young people that will do exactly that lay themselves on the altar. You know, one of the saddest verses in the entire Old Testament has created the premise for this entire series. It's in Ezekiel 22. I sought for a man. God is speaking. I sought for a man. I looked for a man. I searched for a man among them, among my people who should build up the wall and stand in the breach, stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. Listen, you've got to get the evocative imagery from God's own lips. I was looking. I was scanning the crowd. I am looking everywhere for somebody, just one person who will stand up. There's a breach in the wall. Just stand in that breach. And I can't find even one. 
Do you think God's talking about literal brick and mortar walls? Friends, he's not. Walls are metaphors. The language is metaphorical and God is saying, I have walls that I want to put around you and those walls are my salvation, my presence. I'm looking for somebody, one person, who will take my presence and stand in the gap that the world is trying to pour in and I can't find one. That's sad. Elijah, however, said, I'm willing. I will stand in that gap. And I will stand in that gap in the power of God and I will impede that flow. And we start to learn that gap standers, well, they have some fairly consistent characteristics. Now let me run through four characteristics of gap standers. You do something on your end. You put yourself fairly on the map and see, am I a gap stander? Well, first of all, gap standers can't stand by and do nothing in the face of injustice. They just cannot do it. They have to do something. Nothing is simply not an option. They care for God's glory. Second, they're people who can weather the loneliness that comes in the gap. Listen, if you stand up and you are a gap stander, you will stand in that breach. Friends, I'm telling you, you're going to experience loneliness because there's never crowds of people that are standing in the breaches of the crumbling walls of society. Never. If you stand in the gap at your high school, your junior high school, your college, your job, your neighborhood, even maybe in this church, you can expect loneliness, you can anticipate rejection, you can even almost guarantee difficulty. But gap standers say, I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes because this earth is not my home and I've got eternity to rest. Third, gap standers tend to be people of action more than people of words. They're doers. They're not talkers. They don't hide in the anonymity and relative safety of internet forums and argue and debate. They stand toe to toe and face to face. They will defend the glory of God. And finally, they refuse to let their safety and comfort get in the way of their obedience. Spiritual decay emboldens. It makes them motivated. They don't ever develop a what could I do about it anyways paralysis. Listen, we all know what that feels like. This is too big. What could I possibly do? They don't ask that question. They say, God, what do you want me to do? And I'm ready to do it. And they throw themselves into the fray on behalf of the reputation and the honor of Jesus Christ. The honor of Jesus, friends, is always a good enough reason for someone to stand in the gap against evil and do something. And friends, there are rarely many gap standers at any one time in history. But Elijah was a man who caught the eye of God. He was used in the mightiest of ways. The Jews consider Elijah the most Powerful prophet that has ever lived. So I need to ask us, and me as well, I'm in this. Personally, do you catch, do I catch the eye of God 
as one who is willing to stand in the gap. And maybe you think, maybe you're thinking right now, but, but Tim, I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not called to full-time ministry. Friends, there's not one Christian in the world that is not called to full-time ministry. The only time a Christian is secularly employed, listen, is when they take their position that God has given them and they reduce it down to the common worldly level, devoid of Christian virtue. That's it. That's what the word secular means. It means common. You are uncommonly employed, Christian brother and sister. You are employed in full-time ministry. And if you are a teacher... If you're a teacher, do you realize how broad your mission field is? All the different kids and children and maybe adults, if you're a college professor, that are going to come underneath your teaching and your lifetime. If you're a nurse, you don't find people more open to the gospel than when they're laying in a hospital bed. You've got a fertile mission ground. It's ripe oftentimes. It's ready for the gospel to find rootedness. If you're a manager, your mission field is potentially unbelievably powerful. God's given to you a position of influence where you can influence the people underneath your authority. You've got a powerful mission field. If you're in school or if you're in college, you're right in the midst of the darkest, the most difficult, yet I'm telling you, I've been through it. You're in the most exciting mission field you probably will ever, ever experience. Because people are most ready to hear truth when they're younger. Do we catch the eye of God? Do you catch the eye of God? And are you willing to stand in the gap for Christ right where he has planted you? You know what? It's so easy. Listen, I know this. I know this. I haven't always been in the pulpit. I was in the pew for most of my career, just like you. It's so easy to to feel that little bit of conviction that goes through the heart. You're probably feeling a little bit of that right now, I'm guessing. A little of that excitement. And not do anything about it. I promise you by tonight, after football, after the Cowboys, whether you love or hate them, they're playing tomorrow night, by the way. So after tomorrow night, you'll forget all about this. If God's speaking to you now, brother and sister, you've got to respond immediately. Has he caught, have you caught his eye as one that is ready to say, I am all in? I'm on the altar. God, do what you want. I'm going to live for you as a gap stander. Elijah was this. And what we must be as well, because listen, listen, every age has an Ahab. He's the enemy. He's the protagonist. 
and we get to him. Now, Elijah, verse 1, said to Ahab. Ahab is the exact opposite of Elijah. The contrast, it couldn't be more obvious. Remember earlier when I told you that all of the kings of the northern kingdom were bad, all 19 of them? But you need to know that some were worse than others. Some were more evil than others. Flip your page back one more page, one more time to chapter 16, verse 25. Look at what it says about Ahab's dad, Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. But unfortunately, Ahab's got a sick competitive spirit. So we get back to Ahab and look what it says. And Ahab, the son of Omri, this is verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, more than his dad. Evil runs downhill. The crude river of spiritual decay runs downhill. And with the coming, this is the interesting thing. Omri, Omri, by the way, was pretty incredible as a king. I mean, just take and slice out the moral depravity that he lived in. He really did a lot of things for Israel. They were pretty politically powerful with a lot of alliances and a lot of cash coming into their pockets. You probably are going to agree with me, right? A nation will tolerate almost any level of moral decay as long as they're prosperous. Don't we have a good history lesson over and over on that? And this certainly was the case in Israel. They had peace with Judah. That was rare. The southern kingdom and the, and the northern kingdom were at peace under Omri. No, most kings couldn't get that. They had a lot more political power. They had international prominence, economic prosperity and don't underestimate the clout that a ruler can garner when they can establish peace with those around them that's one of the ways the antichrist will come to power look for it somehow middle east is going to experience peace and here comes the road to the antichrist and it may be coming sooner than we'd like to think. And then Ahab, Omri dies and his son Ahab rules for 22 years. And if you take the depravity of Ahab and just set it aside for a second, how did he do as a king? How did he do with success? Well, for 22 years, he was pretty successful. You know, he was able to put 2,000 chariots in the field and battle. You know how much money a chariot cost them? They were rare war machines and they had 2,000 of them. And archaeologists who have, who have discovered Samaria under the rule of Ahab, listen, they would tell you, they've written, it was unequaled in quality, the technology and the art. You know, recently a friend of mine was walking in his backyard and he passed by a large oak tree and all of a sudden he heard it creak. You're not supposed to hear trees creak, especially when they're big oak trees that are leaning out over your home and your pool. And here comes Irene a few days away. He cuts the tree down. And when he cut it down, the, top, the, the bottom six feet of the tree was so eaten and so decayed by a horde of black ants, he couldn't figure out how did this thing stay standing and it probably could not have possibly weathered the wrath of Irene that was coming. 
I'm pretty sure that's a good metaphor, a good picture for Israel. They might have looked good, they might have looked healthy, but they had so much internal decay, and the wrath of God was coming, and its name was Assyria, and they were not going to withstand that country. And friends, listen, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to put aside whatever your political beliefs are. Just listen, unless you have somehow managed to delude yourself this morning, you've got to be seeing modern day parallels. We're really not that different from Israel under Ahab. And I don't think I'm even going to need to step on your political sensitivities to point out that the flow of liberal anti-Christ movements are continually being put forth into the top of our own government. And it didn't start in 2008. Did you see the pictures this last week? Front page news. Beaming, jovial clergymen marrying two men in our Navy. You think we're that far from Israel? Under Ahab, I think we're pretty close. We may even be beyond them. As millions of babies are aborted every single year, thousands in Allentown. All in the name of tolerance. And where's the church? Where are the mighty men, the mighty women, the mighty teenagers for Christ who say, You've got me, God, all of me. I will stand and the gap right where you've put me, and I will oppose the spread of evil, and I will declare your glory. There was one man, friends, one. Listen, one. His name was Elijah. The other 6,999 were hidden. One who had the guts to oppose and enter the battle. Are you that person? been asking me, am I that person? There is a relative safety and anonymity behind this pulpit. I know most of you agree with what I'm saying. This is not risky. You have far more risk than I do because you're right out in the world and you're in the battle. My job is to get you out there and help hold you to the altar and stay on it and stand in the gap. Are you ready to catch the eye of God? And be his servant. That's the question. Lord, thank you for Elijah. Father, we're going to learn so much. We're going to be challenged. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity. Open our eyes, Lord, to the battle that is raging all around us. And give us the boldness and the courage to walk into the courts of the Ahabs. It defend your glory. Lord, it will be difficult. You never hide that fact. We're going to suffer. But this home is not our home and we participate in the sufferings of Christ. You did this. And we, your followers, are called to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow you. Help us to do this well and catch your eye and bring you glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.